when I was asking them about not specifically their own issues, but what doing theater did, mm -hmm. and specifically Shakespeare did, to help them deal with what they were dealing with. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Hello, this is Bob Bach. Welcome to another conversation of the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our guest today is Bonnie North, who lives in Potsdam, New York, and uh, actually not far from the Adirondack Mountains and the Canadian border, I think. Is that right, Bonnie? That's absolutely right. I'm about 17 miles from the Canadian border and about an hour's drive into the heart of the Adirondacks. <laughs> it sounds like very beautiful country, and you're joining us um, from your home. I am in our studio in, in West Bend, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee. Bonnie is a former soldier who served with the Army from 1981 to 1985 in Germany as a uh, cryptologic linguist, focusing on the Czech language. And uh, uh, from August of 2000 to August of 2002, served with a defense contracting team at a U.S. camp in Sarajevo and uh, Kosovo. Uh, <clears throat> Bonnie, I want to start with uh, cryptologic linguist. Wow, what's that? Well, it was nothing. When I first went to the recruiter to think about joining the service in uh, late 1980, early 1981, I had no idea that, you know, I was thinking, oh, there'll be clerical things to do or we'll be sweeping a lot, you know, the usual Army stuff. And so when I did all the tests that you do um, to they want to see where they can put you, you know, needs of the service kind of thing. And they said, you know, you tested really, really high on the language skills test. Have you ever thought about being a linguist? And I said, I didn't know that existed. And they <laughs> said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, and if you're interested, you know, we can get you signed up and get you going to the Defense Language Institute and all of that. So the short answer is yes, I said yes to that. And it was one of those things where we learned what the job was as we went along. I mean, the first, after basic training, the first thing that we did was learn the language, whatever our assigned language was. And for me, that was Czech because I had a choice between Czech and Polish and I flipped a coin. Oh, really? I knew, yeah, <laughs> I knew nothing about either language. I was thinking, oh, Russian, you know, this is 1981, it's still the Cold War. And I thought, oh, Russian will be good. I, you know, maybe I can get a job after the military or stay in with that. And, um, but Russian, everyone else had the same idea. And Russian was like months away. I couldn't actually go you know, go into the service for months and months and months. And I knew if I didn't do it, then I wasn't going to do it. So I, they said, well, we have Czech or Polish. And I said, okay, flipped a coin, pick Czech. And so once we got there and we started learning the language, the military part of the job started to become more clear. And essentially what we were doing or being trained to do was listen to the enemy 
and translate what the enemy was saying. I mean, that's really as simple as it gets. And some there were lots of different jobs. Some people were analysts. They would take that information and then put it into you know various pieces of other intelligence and figure out what things might be happening. But the basic cryptologic linguist job is that you're listening to a target and then you are translating what you hear to the best of your ability and then passing it on to the analysts. So how long of a period of time did you spend uh, in training, learning the language? The language was, I think it was 45 weeks and it was eight hours a day. That was, that was our job. That was our duty. Uh, we did have PT, you know, because you didn't want to stay in shape and all of that. And I think we went to the range occasionally. So we kept up some of the military pieces of it. But we were in class from eight in the morning until five in the afternoon with a break for lunch. And that was our job wow. was to learn that language and to study. And, you know, we were tested all the time. And, um yeah, we used to sit. They had old Quonset huts. This DLI has changed since then. Uh, but at the time where the Czech and the Polish language, well, I think all of them, it was we had just a series of Quonset huts that they had set up. And we were just around a table. My class, there were, I think, Army, Air Force. We might have we had a couple of special forces guys. And we might have had Navy, but they weren't, the Navy wasn't doing much with Czech because they're landlocked, you know. So we did have a Marine, though. I think there was a Marine in, in that class, too. She might have been in Polish. I can't remember right now. But um, so it was mostly Air Force and Army folks. And we spent the next 45 weeks together. Wow. And yeah. were they successful with the training? Were you able to not only speak the language uh, conversationally, but... Uh, greater than that to your duty, uh, understand it as it was being spoken with slang words and all of the other nuances that a, a native speaker would have? I wasn't that trained. Um, we were trained not to speak, really. My speaking was always very relatively poor because we weren't allowed to go to the Czech Republic. Well, it was Czechoslovakia then. Um, because of our security clearances, they were behind the Iron Curtain. Um, so I actually have never been to the Czech Republic, which is on my list of things to do. And I can remember how to ask for beer, you know, and uh, a few things like that. I can say thank you. And, but we were trained to listen and we were trained with very specific military jargon because that's who we were listening to. That was our particular target were various military assets for the Czechs. And so we were learning like one of the phrases I to this day remember is protivzdushny obrani. And what that means is air defense. Oh really? Yeah. And so for some reason that that language stuck in my brain and and I if I hear that proti means against Vzdushni is air um, and obrani is like armament or some uh, weapons or something like that. And so, you know, we learned we learned basic check, like, you know, how to ask for food, what, you know, what table and chair and all of those things were. But they very rapidly moved us once we got that basic understanding of the language and of the grammar. It's very complicated grammar for English speakers because they have case endings. And that means that every verb takes a particular, the nouns following or the pronouns following that verb take a different case to indicate what's happening mm. in the language. So for example, um, the nominative case is I, I talk to you. So there's nominative you is objective the objective or you know so we had to learn a lot of people didn't have the english grammar so a lot of us i knew some but i had to do a lot of kind of backpedaling on my own time to learn the english grammar so i could translate it into the czech grammar so oh. i knew what they were talking about um if you if you grew up at, at a time when you were diagramming sentences yes. in high school, mm -hmm. this would have helped you. <laughs> you would have you would have done really well. I was just on that cusp of we learned a little bit of that, but not enough. Yep. And um, 
And so, but once we got that basic idea, and we were, of course, learning vocabulary lists and and then all the different case endings, depending on, you know, whether it was possessive or this or that. And then they started, you know, introducing the military language. And at this point, I don't believe our training was classified. I think the training for the language that all of the the military words were, you know, common things. Mm-hmm. There, it wasn't anything that we didn't get to the classified training until Texas. Mm-hmm. But the, so the uh, what we were doing, anyone could come in and sit down and and be a part of the class if they were accepted into the class. Nobody needed to have a security clearance. Nobody needed to have special access. Um, but yeah, so it took it took a while, and you know, I have to say. They trained us really, really well to listen mm-hmm. and to transcribe because that's pretty much what our job was. Tell me about that uh, that time in history. It really was a remarkable period, the Cold War and, of course, those years, uh, 81 to 85. As part of the Cold what was that like, What that churn? What was going on? It was a really interesting time to be in Europe because – even though we didn't, well, I didn't know it then, you know, things were starting, I mean, in 89, the wall fell. So it wasn't that far away that the changes were happening. Um, The teachers that we had in the Czech class were actual Czech natives who had escaped in 19, like 1968, when uh, the Velvet Revolution happened in Prague, and the Russians squashed that. So we had like a direct access to what it was like to live behind the Iron Curtain and what that meant. And and so when we got there, we had a real sense of doing something important mm-hmm. that, you know, that we were the first line of defense in case the balloon went up. And everyone at that point thought that the if the balloon was going to go up for World War III, it was going to happen somewhere in Eastern Europe. I've never heard that phrase, the balloon go up. Yeah, maybe that was a, a military intelligence or maybe an army phrase. But the, if the balloon goes up, it had something to do with, I forget now, um, like that would be the indication that things had started. Hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, people were worried about Korea and people were worried about Eastern Europe. And I know there were other hot spots in the world. The Middle East is always a hot spot. But at the time, when I first, I got to Augsburg in 1982, uh, it was everyone was focused on the on the Fulda Gap, which was a space between what was then the two Germanys, um, and it's a, a gap in like the mountain or the whatever range, and that's where we had. We, the U.S., and I think NATO in general had, we had all kinds of troops up there. That was way north of us. And that's where they thought that if the tank war started, it was going to come down through there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we were really close to the Czech border, obviously, because we're listening to Czechs. Um, and so, you know, there was some concern that that would happen there, but they were more worried, I think, about the East Germans and the Russians coming down through Fulda. So it was an interesting, interesting time. Uh, and because we had top secret uh, code word clearances, we are we weren't restricted. Uh, we it was open base and all of that stuff, but we could not cross that mm-hmm. that Iron Curtain. So it sounds like from your description that you you and your comrades had a clearer sense of mission. And uh, I would guess that would have included the uh, belief that you were protecting the United States uh, and perhaps the world. But the question is then from what? Exactly. Well, the Russians and and, and nuclear war, I think, was what was on everybody's mind, Mm -hmm. a nuclear incident. Um, And we we had the sense and, and when I got to field station Augsburg, the language, what I did was only one small piece of the intelligence gathering that was happening there. There was a lot of electronic ELINT type things. There was stuff I'm sure I didn't even know about, mm-hmm. you know, that I wasn't even read into uh, that was happening. We also shared the building, although I never saw their space with, I think there was a British contingent there and there may have been a West German 
contingent as well. Um, I know we had a sister unit, a West German sister unit that we used to do. Like we went up into the mountains and did like not really maneuvers. It was more like a getaway and we'd go out and hike and, <laughs> you know, drink beer um, and talk to each other and kind of get to know each other. But um, but yeah, so there was a lot of stuff going on. And so, yes, we did have a sense that we were really kind of the pointy tip of the spear, or at least a pointy tip of a spear. Mm -hmm. um, but we also, in, in the great military tradition, you know, we also were completely sarcastic and <laughs> like didn't believe we were doing anything. You know, right. it was just like, you know, OK, I'm going to go sweep the floor now because that's really what, you know, what I got trained to do. <laughs> Um, and there was a great sense of the Czechs knew what we were doing and we know what the Czechs were doing. And we were all on some level playing a game mm -hmm. that had very serious consequences, but our level of, of, of engagement wasn't the high level of engagement. You know, I, a, after a, a year there, I realized that, you know, the stuff I was listening to. It, nothing was going to happen there. It mm -hmm. was very unlikely that what I was listening to was going to indicate, oh, my God, this is, you know, it's going to happen. We've got to get this up the chain, you know. Um, so, in fact, there was an Air Force guy, and I've been trying over the, since you and I talked about this and said we were going to be talking, but trying to remember his name, and I can't. I can see him in my mind's eye, but he used to sit position behind me. And I think I sent you a picture of the position uh, that what, what it looked like where we sat, we were just sitting at, you know, desk with tape recorders and cause it was 1982 and three and there wasn't anything else. And, you know, when you're sitting there in your, your fatigues and just doing, doing your thing. And he used to sit behind me on the air force side and listening to whatever his targets were and one one midnight shift because we did rotating shifts we were like day shift swing shift mid shift and one mid shift which was like midnight to eight it's like two or three in the morning the checks are asleep they're not doing anything in the middle of the night you know mm -hmm. so you're trying to stay awake and everybody's doing you know trying to stay awake and, and this guy tapped me on the shoulder he said hey i got something i need you to listen to and i thought it's two in the morning what's going on? You know, that is like, what? And, and so I, I, I wheeled back on my chair over and I plugged into the position with him and put on my headphones. And it was like this most raucous rock and roll. It was like pounding rock and roll. And I kind of looked at him and he said, I think we need to listen to this for a while. Don't you? And I said, yeah, I think we do. Cause you know, uh, who knows something might come out of this and and so we we used to call it radio pvo protivizdushni obrani which is air defense and uh these guys knew we were listening to them and so and they were on duty at midnights like we were and trying to stay awake and they somehow had access to the best rock and roll station you ever heard. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, to this day, do not know where they got their music, but we could always guarantee on this particular frequency, they'd be playing us music. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. It's just, it's so military. <laughs> when you, when you think of the kind of the overarching purpose of, uh, your mission and, and what's at stake and all of those things. And, and yep. here is this bit of, uh, uh, almost serendipity going on. Uh, now, you also spent two years as a defense contractor, and what was that all about? That was much later. I had gotten out of the Army in 85, uh, went into the State Department and worked for the State Department for three years as a communications person, and then got out to go back to school. I wanted to finish my degree. I'd never finished my bachelor's degree, so I went and did that, and then got into radio in the early 1990s um, and was working at Vermont Public Radio until 2000 when I went overseas, and at that point, 
things had been shifting at the public radio station and I knew that I needed to move on to do something else. And I wasn't sure what that was going to be. And a, a series of happy coincidences informed me about this job that then TRW, now Northrop Grumman, um, had. They had this contract in the Balkans to provide linguist services, linguist support. And they weren't looking for me to be a linguist because I did not have Serbo-Croatian, even though it's similar to Czech, it's not the same. And uh, what they were looking for is people who had a military background and people who understood what translators do and the kind of work that they're doing and could manage that and those people who were civilians with the military customer, who in this case was the U.S. Army. Hmm. And so when I sent my resume down. They called me right away. I went for an interview down in, in outside of DC in the Beltway. And about a week later, I had, I had the job if I wanted it. And I did. And I wanted to go back overseas. Of course, they were paying really good money. Um, and, and I got to be in a part of the world that I never thought I would spend any time in. And it was shortly after, well, you know, four years after the Dayton Accords. So the civil war in Bosnia had not been over for very long. Mm -hmm. And so there were still a lot of really tense spots and interesting things going on and getting to, you know, take care of my linguists and make sure that they were being treated right. They were doing the job they were hired to do and, you know, and that the military was getting what they paid for. In, in the middle of all of this stuff was a very cool experience. Is it uh, amazing to you how fast time has gone? I mean, that's been, what, 30 years since you were involved in that or, or a little less? Uh, it's 20 years, 21 20, years. Yeah, yeah wow. 21 years. Right, right this August, I will have reported, we had to go to Fort Benning in Georgia to get uh, even though we didn't wear uniforms and stuff because we were civilian contractors, we still had to go through kind of, I don't know if it was like awareness training or whatever. I mean, the military folks were going through their particular piece of it because they were they were transferring over mm -hmm. there and were going to be doing missions. Um, and so we went through part of that with them so that we understood what they were doing and you know, what they would need from sure. the linguists. And and then we arrived and we were civilians and driving civilian vehicles. And we did have S4, the status of forces patches and stuff that were on the cars. So people knew that we were allowed to be there because we weren't <laughs> in uniform and yeah. we weren't allowed to wear a uniform. It was not, you know, we weren't military. And right. It was very clear. Um, but, you know, we worked with, and in Bosnia specifically in Sarajevo, that was NATO headquarters. And so on the base that where I had my office and where all the linguists worked out of, um, at least down there, we had about 50 down there. There were way more in the north uh, at a different different base. But, um, you know, we we had. Oh, there must have been 30 nationalities there of NATO forces represented. Wow. It got to the point I could walk down, you know, if I was going to go to the mess hall or something like that, because we were allowed to eat in the mess hall. Um, we would uh, I could look down and say, oh, that fatigue pattern, those are the Dutch. Oh, my. Or those are the Turks mm -hmm. or those those are oh, those are Romanians <laughs> at that point, you know, and it was so because everyone had their own BDU pattern, sure. you know, their fatigue pattern. And so you got really good. At, oh, those are the Brits because they wear their hats a certain way yep, or, yep. you know. Yeah. So it was Just, it was uh, a very cool time to be there. I'll bet. And really um, unforgettable experiences, it sounds like. Yep. Yeah. Now, yep. you mentioned public radio and, and Vermont, uh, and, and of course, um, in your more recent life, your professional life, that uh, public radio has been front and center, uh, Absolutely, reporter, yeah. arts and culture producer, manager, um, also produced a music program that aired in Ireland. Uh, uh, Scotland. Scott, Scotland. I'm sorry. Yeah. How, important, right. how important has public radio been in your life? Oh, huge. 
huge. And even long before I thought I would ever have a home in public radio, I was listening to NPR like in the late 70s. And uh, I remember Three Mile Island happening. What was that, 79? Mm -hmm. And um, I remember listening to Susan Stamberg and it might have been Robert Siegel at that point reporting on it. Uh, listening to All Things Considered and thinking, wow, this is not like any radio I've ever heard. You know, this is this is so different. This yeah. is so, so personal. Um, and and then it was just like, oh, yeah, OK, whatever. And I had no idea that radio would be a part of my life until the early 1990s. I had gotten out of the State Department, finished my undergraduate degree in New York and was did a year of graduate school and thought, eh, that's not for me. Uh, I don't I don't really want to do this and came back to the East Coast because my parents were still living and they were in the town I grew up in. And so I kind of popped back over there because I was at loose ends and found an apartment and was doing sort of a day job. And then somebody said to me, you know, uh, Vermont Public Radio is looking for a classical music announcer. You should apply. And and I thought, okay, but I don't even know how to apply. <laughs> I didn't. I I didn't have a tape. I didn't have anything. So I was doing my day job. It had nothing to do with that. But I was uh, working with a little theater company in town. And they had a little sound booth, of course, because mm -hmm. they were to, to run things. And so I asked them, I said, hey, could I come in and like make a tape, like a cassette tape? And they said, sure. You know, they set it up for me and everything. And I on my lunch break, I popped over there and I I figured they'd want to know that I could pronounce all the tough Oh, sure. Right. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> so I pretended I was playing music, you know, with, you know, Tchaikovsky and this and then I pronounced all of these different conductors. And I I took the local newspaper and read uh, some news. I pretended to read some news and some weather and stuff. I, I figured they just want to hear what I sounded like. I had no idea how to put a brain together. I <laughs> didn't know a thing about it, but I, I did it. I gave them, I think, about five minutes or something, and I sent it off to them in postage, of course, because very few people had email even at that point. And, um, and they called me up and said, come down for an interview. So I did. And they said, you know, we'd love to train you and hire you. And you have a shift, um, if you want it, on Sunday afternoons from noon to six. <laughs> and five of those hours are, you know, classical music of your choice. Wow. Yeah. So I said, well, yeah, I'll do that. They were paying reasonably well for, you know, just hourly and uh, and it supplemented my day job. And uh, and I got in there and then they realized I had a little talent or something. And they said, well, we'd like to train you to be the morning edition backup host. Mm -hmm. And I said, OK. And then it was, oh, I think we started with ATC and then it was morning edition. And. And so, and that was kind of like the rest is history. It was like, I sure. started doing that. And then people were going on vacation. They're like, Bonnie, can you come down and like work a whole week doing blah, blah. And, and eventually it turned into a full-time job. Oh my. Yeah. For like, I think I worked at VPR in various capacities for seven years mm -hmm. before I went off to Bosnia. Yeah. Well, our paths crossed personally at uh, WUWM, which is Milwaukee sure Public Radio. And, um, that's what I want to find out more about, Bonnie. I know during your years there that you had an opportunity to uh, uh, interact and interview uh, just scores of people on, on so many subjects, but veterans and veteran issues were among those subjects. And I wonder if you could call up uh, some of the experiences you had uh, with the interviews that you've done with veterans, for instance, is there a way to uh, to paint a personality or a profile of of the veteran, or is it just way too varied? Well, there were a lot of different folks that I talked to, every from individual veterans to. In the last year, I was at uh, WUWM. I actually spoke to the Secretary of Defense, uh, Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Um, he had come and they actually contacted me and said, you know, we'd 
we'd love to have you do an interview with him. And I was like, absolutely. I have lots of questions for you. <laughs> and, and it was wonderful. I mean, it was, it was terrific. One of the people that really stands out, and I think he might've been the first veteran that I interviewed for Lake Effect, which was the show, um, was Dr. Lee at the VA Medical Center yes. there, the Zablocki. Mm-hmm. And he was working on, and still does as far as I know, on these really wonderful um, adaptations for, for veterans who've had uh, traumatic brain injuries and who've had uh, traumatic amputations and that sort of thing, where they're working on like exoskeletons yes. and devices so that so that veterans can move again and can participate in in their lives again. And when he came in to talk to me about that, he had just come back from either Iraq or Afghanistan, I forget which, and he himself is a PTSD sufferer. And he talked about that, and he talked about how having suffering from it himself was, it, it helped him help the veterans that he was helping as a doctor Mm -hmm. and that it allowed him insights. And I remember sitting in that interview and thinking, you are really cool. Mm -hmm. You are doing such important work and, and I want to keep in touch with you. And I did. Uh, And I interviewed him a couple of more times in the 14 years I was there and a lot of other people. And I have to say the other really one that sticks out to me was a story that I did on Shakespeare for Veterans. Oh, yes. Yeah, which is a group started in Milwaukee by civilians, but worked with the VA to help veterans with PTSD by using Shakespeare and using his specifically his war plays like Othello and um, and get them up on stage and kind of talking through it, it wasn't therapy, mm-hmm. but it allowed them to kind of touch on some of the things they were dealing with in a safe way. Sure. And I remember they were doing Othello, and I got permission to come to the rehearsal. And and they had a, the I'd already talked to the folks who were running at the civilians and they had talked, given me some lovely interviews over the years. But I said, you know, I really want to talk to some veterans. Are there any who are doing this who'd be willing to talk with mm-hmm. me and go on, you know, go on the air? And they said, let's find out. And so they got back to me and they said, yeah, you know, they all want to talk to you. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, really mm-hmm. cool. And so I got there. I, I got some audio of the rehearsal of them doing it. And then we broke away while they were still working. Um, anyone who wanted to come could, uh, we went to another spot in the rehearsal area that was private and, um, and they all talked to me mm-hmm. and it was, it was astounding. And, you know, and I was asking them about not specifically their own issues, but what doing theater did mm-hmm. and specifically Shakespeare did to help them deal with what they were dealing with. And they all had such amazing things to say. And there was one fellow I remember, Vietnam vet, his wife was actually part of it too, because they had opened it up to spouses and partners. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he was talking about, he was a Navy vet, and uh, and he was talking about you know, some of the things that he had gone through and, and how doing the part that he was doing was helping him. And his wife p- leaned over and piped in. She said, you know, if if we hadn't found, if he had, he found it first and then she joined in later. She said, if, if he hadn't found this, she said, I don't think we'd still be together. Oh, my. And And, and I thought, holy cow. And I said, it's really that powerful. She said, yeah, because it it's let him open up Mm -hmm. and all the years we were married, he could never talk about it. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden he can talk about it at least somewhat. And some of the pressure is relieved. And, and that's what they all talked about is like, this gives me a place to put this stuff and I can leave it here. That's amazing. Isn't it? it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I remember I was just sitting there, trying not to cry as I'm doing this interview because it was so powerful and all these people and they're all, they've created their band of brothers and sisters outside of the military in this way. 
And and I thought we should have this in every veterans hospital in the country, mm-hmm. every single one, because it just I didn't know these people before, but I could feel that they were open with each other and they had the kind of camaraderie that you have when you're in the service. And, you you, you know, you have your, your platoon or your squad or whatever it is, and they're, they're your kin for life. Mm-hmm. And yeah. these folks were able to recreate that, and that was one of the most powerful interviews I ever did. You know, it's amazing. I was just thinking as you were doing such a good job of describing that openness that to get there really requires uh, – the desire to, uh, or, or the, the courage to take a risk. And, uh, you know, yeah. so much of, of serving, particularly in, in a conflict, in an armed conflict, requires risk, risk-taking and courage. But yet um, veterans in a peaceful setting uh, can be faced with that similar degree of risk-taking except to open up from the inside. It, there's just a powerful coincidence there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I've always been very careful when I talk to veterans to let them know I'm not a wartime vet Mm -hmm. because I'm not, I'm not. I served at a time it was cold war, but I was not an armed conflict. Mm -hmm. And so I want them to know that I don't consider myself in that same category because I don't, I'm not. Um, I understand the lingo because I served. I know what it's like to put on a uniform. I know what it's like, you know, to do it the right way, the wrong way in the army way, <laughs> as they used to. <laughs> but I'm, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have anyone shoot at me, you know, and I didn't shoot at anybody. And so I'm really careful if I interview veterans to let them know that I'm not putting myself in that same category sure. because I, I'm not, I'm not, I do it at the VA too, because I go to the VA for, for care and I'm really careful because I think that's an important distinction to make. Uh, it's, it's really important that the people who have gone through that mm-hmm. understand that nobody else is going to understand it in the same way. And I, I, and I don't put myself on that same level sure. at all. When you make those clarifications, how are they received? Every time I have, you know, they people have just nodded. Some people have just kind of nodded as in, like, thanks for, you know, acknowledging that. And most people are, are fine. You know, they, I, I just, I never want people to feel like I'm, you know, horning in on their experience because I'm not, you know, and I couldn't. I have my particular experience in the military, but it's not theirs, and I know that. So I have, excuse me, have the uh, conversations and other interactions that you've had with veterans, Bonnie, have they left a lasting impression on you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Even though I am myself a veteran, Mm -hmm. I it pales to me in comparison to what some of these folks have gone through and how they manage to function in civilian society in any degree is, is sometimes amazing to me considering what they've gone through. Um, One of the things I've noticed is that at least in public radio, there seems to be more, attention paid to veterans and to to active duty people too, but to veterans and veterans stories that aren't just about yellow ribbons and that sort of thing that that we're really talking about stuff Mm -hmm. and that, that we're really trying to get everyone else to understand the sacrifices that a lot of people have made. I always used to say, I, I had a golden military experience. I had four years. I went, I went through basic training, which is icky for everyone. You know, it, it's a rite of passage. You do it. You go through it. I was in Cal- Monterey, California for a year for language training. I was in Texas for three or four months for advanced training. And then I lived in West Germany for three years. It was a really good – and I traveled all over Europe. I had – the Army treated me really, really well. It has not done that for everyone. 
And I'm really conscious of that when I talk to veterans who've not had a good experience or whose experiences in the military were of conflict and all of that, that, that I almost had, you know, I had the, uh, the perfect desk job mm -hmm. in the military. And so, you know, um, listening to everyone's stories and, and talking to folks about what they've gone through and when they trust you to open up a little bit, uh, you know, I'm not a therapist. I don't want to be. It's not that's not my job is to get you to do that. But if you want to tell a story, I want to be there to listen. Mm -hmm. Well, I must say that I, I think many veterans will find it quite gratifying that uh, your impressions as a public radio professional are that public radio itself is becoming uh, more open and inviting to uh, the veteran story. And I mean that in a kind of uh, global sense. And I, I think it's uh, the timing couldn't be better, if you ask me. I agree. I think it's a long time coming. It's We've needed it to happen. You know, certainly Vietnam made it really clear and, and how everything I was I was a kid when when that conflict was happening. But I remember how it tore people apart mm -hmm. and um, and how the veterans coming back didn't get the kind of services that they deserved and needed. Um, and that I think that has changed. I think the VA has become better. Uh they seem to be more aware of what they do. Now, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a tiny bit political here, just just a little bit. Congress needs to fund it. Mm -hmm. That's part of the problem with the VA is not the VA. It's that it doesn't get the funding it mm -hmm. deserves. And, you know, I think as as citizens of this country, we owe it to our vets to take care of them. And so I hope that will change. I think it has changed some, and I think it's it's getting better. And as more stories are being told, we have a new news reporter here, new to us. I mean, he's not new to the business, but he is himself um, a veteran. And I finally, uh, Bob, when you and I worked together, we were the only two veterans on staff. And now I've got somebody here who is the, there's another veteran on staff. <laughs> and he, like you, was a war vet. He, mm -hmm. he was in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, and he's now doing he's covering Fort Drum is up here. Oh, it's sure. Big, yeah. And it's the 10th Mountain Division, mm -hmm. the home of the 10th Mountain. And uh, it's a big employer, a civilian employer, of course, for the region, as well as for the military folks that come through. And we have quite a substantial VA system up here because a lot of those Fort Drum folks when they retire, they stay up here because mm -hmm. it's pretty, yep. you know, so the main VA is in Syracuse, which is about three hours away, but there's, there's clinics all over the North country. And I don't think that was the case even 20 years ago. I think that has changed. And, and I know I just saw on our website earlier today, Ryan, our other veteran here just did a big story on the change of command. There's a big change of command happened sure. at uh, Fort Drum just yesterday, I think, and then they talked to the new general and, you know, what they're trying to do and some of the changes that are happening there. And, and same thing with the, the veterans up here. There are a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really pleased. There's one of the things that when they offered me the job here, and they asked me, as program director, where do you see gaps in our coverage? I said, you're not covering your veterans and military enough. Interesting. It's a huge thing here. It's a huge thing here. And and it's nice to see that we've managed, despite the pandemic and everything else, to add somebody whose specialty is that. He has you know, a way in to talk to folks because he's himself a combat vet. Sure. And, you know, it opens a door that we wouldn't get otherwise. And I'm thrilled that we're offering that coverage. And, you know, the audience notices it. I, I see comments and things. It's like, it's so nice to see you're covering the military mm -hmm. up here. Very good. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Bonnie, it's been just a, a fascinating uh, chance to get together and, and hear so many of your stories. I appreciate that. And I want to make sure that if there's something I have forgotten or otherwise uh, maybe didn't emphasize, please feel free to add that in. Okay. Well, I, there's one story I want to tell you 
uh, and this is what you're talking about Cold War and what it felt like to be in Europe at that time, even though we didn't quite know it was the getting to the end of the Cold War, it was still pretty, it was a hot Cold War kind of, you know, and, um, and so this would have been in the fall of 1982. And the fellow I was seeing, we met at the Defense Language Institute, and he was a Polish linguist. And he had gone to Field Station Berlin, which, of course, was a walled city at that point. And there was West Berlin and then the rest of East Berlin and East Germany. And I was in Augsburg. And the only way we could see each other is if either he came to visit me or I went to visit him. And one that fall, I was part of a women's tag football team. And and we were told that if we won whatever we were doing, we would get uh, a trip to Berlin to play the field station Berlin women's tag football team. And of course I was all over that because I wanted to go see John, but I also wanted to see Berlin mm -hmm. and all of that. So we won our thing. And so the way you had to do it because you were going behind the iron curtain and we had sec the security clearance says there was only two ways you could go. You could fly from Munich or you could go up to Frankfurt and take the troop train. <laughs> which was completely, you know, so of course, because they weren't going to fly us all up there, we all, we, we take the train up to Frankfurt and then we get on the troop train and the troop train ran once a day and it ran overnight. <laughs> so you left Frankfurt at like, I don't know, nine at night or something. And you got in at like seven in the morning. Today, the, the, the train trip from Frankfurt to Berlin is about four hours. Wow. But because it, it, it was on a specific track, it went very slowly. And uh, so, and we were told when we got on, we had this briefing as we got on, okay, you know, we're going to be stopping at all these stations. There will be Russian soldiers. They will be armed. Do not do anything. Do not do this. Do not do that. You know, don't make eye contact if, you know, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, these were old European trains, which had a hallway along one side, and then they were compartment cars where you had six um, six seats to three facing each other. Mm -hmm. And then then the um, the beds would pull down, so you would have three six beds, three on each side. And so I was in with my teammates and everything, and I couldn't sleep. And I was I was excited. I was like, oh my god, I'm going to be going into East Germany. And, and so we crossed the border. We have to stop at the border and everything. And that was pretty uneventful. But it's by this time, it's like maybe two in the morning. And I remember it was close to Halloween. So it was late fall. And it was a very bright moonlit night. And we pull into this random stop in the middle of nothing. <laughs> And there's a little train station, you know, it's a little platform and everything. And sure enough, there are the, you know, Russian soldiers in there full with the Kalashnikovs, a whole thing, whole thing. And I'm sitting by the window out in the hallway because I just, I couldn't sleep and I didn't want to wake up my, my teammates. And, and I'm sitting there and we pull up and I think, oh gosh, should I move? Should I, you know? And I thought it's better just to sit there. They've seen me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I made eye contact with this one kid and he was a kid. At that point, I was 22 or three. Mm -hmm. So this kid, he probably was 18, you know, yeah. and and we did a quick we just kind of acknowledged each other and I and we kind of broke. And I'm looking around and I see nothing from my not lights. There was not a town, <laughs> nothing. And it was at that moment that I can, I have the feeling to this day where I thought, this is all about keeping them in, not keeping us out. Wow. That's what this is all about. Mm -hmm. and, and how it true. Was one huh? of those, and how true it yeah. was. Um, you know, and I remember pulling into Berlin and we went a certain way and we were on the, the subway and there were certain. Uh, ghost stations, you know, they didn't stop, couldn't get off because it ran under East Berlin territory oh, okay. yep. and all of that kind of stuff. And I don't think anyone was shot 
crossing, trying to cross the no man's land while I was there, but it wouldn't have surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, standing at Checkpoint Charlie and standing at, you know, other places, checkpoints along the wall and knowing that it really wasn't about keeping us out. And, and, and it was, I think then that I realized kind of as much as we made fun of it, how important the job was. Mm -hmm. Amazing. That sense of mission. Yeah. That sense of mission. Right. And in, in something so intellectual, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like we were, holding a foxhole or, you know, or trying right. to take a hill or right. something, you know, but it was like, Oh, this is what we're doing. <laughs> oh, yep. okay. I get it. An epiphany. It. <laughs> it really was. Yep. And I'll yep. never forget that cold. It was cold. They were in their big jackets, mm-hmm. you know, their big coats, the Russian coats and the, and the hats and the whole thing. Sure. And I remember thinking I will never forget this. Mm -hmm. And I often wonder what happened to that kid whose eye contact I made in 1982, you know? (laughs) Oh, that's something. Yeah, hopefully you live a long and happy life, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Bonnie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Bob, it has been such a pleasure to tell old stories and and to talk to you, of course. I miss you. Uh, I loved working with you in the time that we had together, and I'm so glad you're doing this podcast because it's so important. Thank you, Bonnie. We have been visiting with Bonnie North, uh, who served in the Army from 1981 to 1985 and later as a linguist for a U.S. defense contractor in Sarajevo and Kosovo. Bonnie is currently a public radio professional and a member of the staff at North Country Public Radio in upstate New York. Thanks to our listeners for joining us today. Um, Carrie Wheaton is our audio editor and producer. The Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast is sponsored by grants from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation and We Energies. On behalf of uh, hosts Mike Orman and Aaron Schroffnagel, this is Bob Bach. And also a quick reminder that the Veterans Crisis Line is always available at 800-273-8255, press number 1, or text at 838-255 to chat. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.